All right, so we're back to another cutting room floor. Uh, this last Sunday, you talked about Genesis 11 and 12, Abraham, Babylon, sort of this call to be a blessing, not a container, but a conduit. Mm -hmm. And then next week, I'm going to talk in Genesis 18 and 19. So there's a little territory in between. Sure. Uh, and you wanted to sort of lean into this king, priest, Melchizedek, like, okay, so what's going on there? Maybe set the stage a little bit. Yeah, totally. So in between kind of what I taught last week and then what you're end up going to be teaching, there's a section in Genesis 14 that's a little mysterious. Mm -hmm. So there's this figure, and we'll get into a little bit more of the background here to start off. This is basically there's this figure called Melchizedek, and he has this encounter with Abraham, who we more or less know. But this Melchizedek figure only shows up here and then one other spot in the Old Testament. And it's okay. generated a lot of like speculation, yep. curiosity. Who is this figure? What's his significance? Um, and the language used here in Genesis 14 and then in other places, the one other place in the Old Testament, and then the author of Hebrews picks up on yep. this Melchizedek figure, seems to be actually really important for how we understand the person of Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like yeah. this guy who seems kind of random, but ends up in the Psalms and the New Testament yeah. as a potential prefiguring of who Jesus is. Totally, yeah. And for the author of the book of Hebrews, and this is kind of jumping to the end real quick, but just to kind of let people know where we're going yeah. with this, for the author of, of Hebrews, it takes a large amount of airtime, if you will, this Melchizedek figure, as to kind of develop this portrait of who Jesus is and what his significance is and what he's done for us. So that's kind of where this, is, yeah, yeah. this conversation is going. But maybe to kind of set the stage, in Genesis 14 kind of jumping, parachuting right in, what ends up happening is that Abraham's nephew Lot more or less gets captured and taken away by kind of these warlording kings, yep. these ancient, you know, city-state sort yep. of kings, if you will. Abraham goes off and rescues Lot, defeats these kings, yep. and upon Abraham's return back home, this mysterious figure, kind of as you read it, kind of seems like comes out of nowhere. Melchizedek comes up. And there's this, this scene where this Melchizedek figure, after Abraham returns, he's king of Salem, the text says in Genesis mm -hmm. 14, 18. He brings out some bread and wine. And then in the ESV, it's in like parentheses, it notes he was a priest of God most high. Just throws that out there. Yep. Um, and then in verse 19, this Melchizedek figure um, blesses Abraham and said, blessed be Abraham by God the most high of heaven and earth. And then following in verse 20, Abraham gives this Melchizedek figure a tenth of everything he has. It's a tithe, the same yeah. kind of idea. And then the story just kind of ends. Melchizedek's yeah. off the scene, and it's almost kind of like, you know, Star Trek or something. He just, poof, vanishes. He's gone. Yeah. He's gone. And then you're kind of left wondering, okay, so why are, just happened why, are, yeah, why are we being told this? King of Salem, priest, tithe, blessing. Yeah. Huh, a lot of detail a lot for of a random character. Random character. And I think maybe a good place to start is that this phrase, the Melchizedek, he's described as being a king of Salem. Now, you kind of go into the nitty gritty of that. A lot of smart people kind of make the argument this king of Salem phrase is kind of a precursor of this same city or the same area of what will eventually become Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Salem. Yeah. So you can kind of yeah. see it in English the wordplay there. So this is like a king before Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem in like the full on Israelite yeah. sense. He's king of that same, same area, that same city, if you will. Um, so that's kind of one of the first things to put on the table. And then also the second part is that the description of him being a priest of God most high. So you have both of these things together. He's a kingly figure yep. and a priestly figure. Now, if you kind of know your New Testament, you know Jesus, you kind of perhaps maybe see where this is going. But I want to kind of tease this out a little bit yep. kind of through kind of the rest of the Old Testament. Now, in particular, though, 
in the Old Testament, we actually don't hear of this Melchizedek figure at all, except for one other place in Psalm 110. Okay. Now, Psalm 110, kind of big picture, significance for like the rest of Scripture, in particular the New Testament, is the most quoted verse, or most quoted, yeah. most quoted passage, yep. if you will, by the New Testament writers from the Old Testament. Primarily verse 1. Primarily verse 1. So like the, sem- the semi-famous line from verse 1 is, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy's a footstool. Kind of this prefiguring yep. figure if, of Jesus being the Lord, Lord of all. Now that's the theory that gets quoted a ton yep. throughout the New Testament. But hidden away in verse 4 is again this mention, the only other mention of Melchizedek, which verse 4 reads, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest for forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, at this point, all we have is two, basically two passages, really. Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Those kind of are on one side of the equation, if you will, as far as this priestly kind of king yep. type figure. Now, when we're talking about this priestly aspect of kind of God's people, if you will, there's a whole other kind of stream that actually gets way more airtime throughout yeah. the Old Testament. That's more or less probably more popular or more well-known yeah. at least. So and that's the Levitical, Levitical. Kind of Aaron, all that side. Totally. Yeah. And okay. so kind of having both of these trains of thought as yep. we go. So you have the Melchizedek kind of priestly thing, only two passages. On the other hand, the, the Aaronic or the Levitical yeah. priesthood, which starts out from the book of Exodus that's an co- interesting kind of origin, right? Totally, yeah. And so this is, I think, important, and it's kind of geeky, but I also think there's payoff if you kind of track with it a little bit. Kind of the argument that seems most attractive to me is that the Levitical priesthood was actually set up more or less as kind of a, a concession, if I can use that word. Yeah, so burning bush, Moses, and isn't it at the burning yeah, bush, so right? Yeah, so totally. like... I want to send you. And he's like, oh, I can't speak so well. Totally. Yeah. And so as a concession to like Moses' sort of lack of faith, yeah. lack of trust, God then tells Moses, okay, I'm going to send Aaron with you and he yeah. will essentially speak for you. And that's kind of how we're introduced yeah. to Aaron, more or we less. We don't often think about that as the origin story of the v- Levitical law. Totally. Yes. And then what we kind of track with that, at that point, you're kind of more or less, okay, you know, God's meeting Moses where yeah. he's at, you know, kind of maybe don't think anything too much of it. Fairly innocent at that point. Yeah. But then you can just kind of track through the narrative of the Old Testament of how Aaron and his priestly line develop and the stories that are being told of him. Like his first act as a priest essentially is the golden calf. The golden calf and leads Israel into idolatry. It's the same, again, sort of language we've talked about on Sundays of like the sea, take, all that sort of stuff. It's fall language repeated all over again in Exodus 32. And then you kind of keep going on throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You get to the book of Leviticus. Yeah. Leviticus chapter 10 describes an instance where Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they do something kind of with the, the language there is a little bit ambiguous, but yeah. nevertheless, they Not disrespect good. and yeah. dishonor God's sort of process yeah. of how they're supposed to act as priests, and they are killed. Yeah. You go into the book of Samuel, continuing on with this priestly yeah. line. This is a few generations Samuel past. Samuel was awesome, but his kids again. Well, it's Eli. So like oh, Eli, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eli's kind of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, vile and evil sons, worthless yeah, sons yeah. is actually how the text uh, speaks of them. They're not all that, you know, great or whatever. And so what you have all throughout the Old Testament, for the most part, is this portrayal of the, of the, of the Levitical priesthood that doesn't necessarily sort of meet the standard, if you will, sure. that I think God is actually wanting to set yeah. out. These people, these leaders that can bring forgiveness or, or mediate God's forgiveness and blessing to the people so they might be in fellowship and communion yeah, with God. So the, those are the kind of the two buckets there. Yeah. Um, the so Levitical priesthood. Yes, you have the Levitical priesthood that has some issues. Yeah. And maybe even a questionable origin story. Totally. 
And then you have this priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is sort of the King of Salem thing, also a priest. Then you have the Davidic. Yeah. So like, then let's let's throw in kind of this third yeah. piece is the the David side of this. Now, most of us kind of are familiar with David as being King David, yeah. which is 100% true. No problems there. But sometimes what gets overlooked in the David stories is that at multiple points, and there's people who are listening to this want to look at the notes attached, multiple points in the David story, both in Samuel and in Chronicles, where David is just doing priestly things. Yeah. And on one level, it's kind of like, okay, how am I supposed to think of that? Because there is some instances where in the Old Testament where those two lines seem to have been, or those two roles seem to and Much should be more separate, distinct. more yeah. distinct. And then all of a sudden there's this David figure who's doing both. Yeah. He's ruling as king and he's doing things that only really priests should do. He's wearing the linen ephod. He's, you know, making certain sacrifices. He's doing kind of temple-ish, yeah. you know, Ark of the Covenant sort of things. And so it kind of then fills in this kind of shelf space, if you will, yeah. of this figure who is going to be both kingly and priestly. Yeah. And so we already have kind of the seedbed of that with Melchizedek. Yeah. He's the king of Salem priest of the God most high fleshed out through David and then kind of grappled on after the exile, after the exile. Right. So like the exile being this period at the end of the old Testament, um, towards the end, at the end of the old Testament, leading up into the time of Jesus where God's people are no longer for the most part in the land in Jerusalem. So maybe there's a connection there of like, there's a sort of disconnection from the temple. Totally. So now you have these sort of latching onto this King priest that maybe isn't so, has to be so connected to the actual sacrifices at the temple. At the temple, right? It becomes more or less, not remote, but more, I guess, autonomous from yeah. like a physical building, sure. if you will. And so all throughout what we might call like the intertestament period between the Old and New Testament, yeah. about, about 400, 400 years, years. Yeah. there's all this kind of growing speculation with kind of what we would call extra biblical writings yeah. as to who is this Melchizedek sort of figure and who is this... Is there going to be this one to come who would be kind of both this kingly and priestly line? Because we know even on the, the kingly David side, there's some corruption yeah. and some problems there. And so kind of what I think the Old Testament is then eventually portraying is that what we need around here is one who can fulfill both these kingly and priestly yeah. sort of roles, if you will. Yeah. And even kind of a prophetic strain really becomes big during this time too, yeah. right? Totally. Of like the Messiah as the prophet. Yes. And Jesus kind of actually fulfills all of those. All I know that's n- not exactly where we're going. Totally. Story, no, no, yeah. But like that is another major development. Totally. Yeah. And to really flesh period. out kind of the, the portrait that I think the Old yeah. Testament is trying to give us is that ultimately what we kind of, it's really, I kind of think of it as, you know, those, those like, those, those, I don't know what you call them. They're like those pictures that are made up of like a bunch of different small pictures mm. And they kind of all together, when you stand back, create like a portrait of something that's really clear. But like when you look and zoom in, you have all these like mini sort of portraits and pictures. And so taking all these different stories from Melchizedek, the Levitical priest, David, all are like little snippets. And then as you bring them together, the mosaic that we're actually invited to see, hopefully, you know, as followers of Jesus is Jesus. And lo and behold, this is exactly kind of jumping a little bit to the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews dedicates almost an entire chapter, yeah, right? Totally. To Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Comes up two times in the entire Old Testament. Totally. And so the one of the main arguments that the author to the of the, the book of Hebrews is trying to make, specifically in Hebrews chapter seven, and then builds off of that into chapter eight, nine, and ten, but specifically seven, uses this Melchizedek figure for basically this logic of 
even though Jesus is not from the Levitical line, not from the line of Aaron, he's from the line of David, from the line of Judah, he still is able to fulfill this role as high priest. And so essentially what you have is I could pull a number of lines from Hebrews 7, but one that kind of stood out to me was Hebrews 7 verse 25. The writer says, consequently, he, Jesus, because he is priest, referring to the line of Melchizedek, he is then able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Now, in context, Hebrews 7, the verse 25, is building off this much larger argument of Melchizedek, creating sort of that that mini-portrait to be fulfilled of that much larger portrait of Jesus, which kind of leads then to this basic conclusion, which is kind of basic Christian, you know, doctrine, theology, if you will, that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, that language of like high priest is a little bit foreign yep. to us in the kind of our modern, you yep. know, everyday we have pastors, not priests. Totally. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like it's a whole different high priest, high priest. Yeah. It's very kind of, <laughs> I don't know, liturgically sounding. Yeah. I don't know. Not that that's bad or anything, but the point being is that we kind of have to do a little bit of translation. What does yep. that mean for Jesus to kind of more or less fulfill this Melchizedek high priestly yep. kind of role? Um, there's a number of things, lots of books written on this. A lot yeah. of things we can Maybe say. Can give a couple little like snapshots. Totally. Yeah. I think just four things that kind of hopefully land this as far as how we then understand Jesus and his vocation and mission okay. for us. So I think number one, as our high, high priest, Jesus intercedes for us. I think of a passage in the book of Romans, Hebrews also talks about this, but in those moments where we do not know how to pray as we ought, mm. the scriptures tell us that Jesus is interceding for us yep. on our behalf. It's kind of like this mediating kind of role yep. that Jesus plays in, in the spirit as well um, plays. The book of Hebrews also talks about as our high priest that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Mm. And so there's this level of sort of like the priestly role of Jesus is to be this one who sympathizes and empathizes with us in our moments of weakness. That'd be number two. And then number three, as a kind of a priestly sort of figure, thinking about even the Old Testament, this figure was able to enter into these, into the most holy place in Mm. the tabernacle, in the temple, like this immediate full access to the presence of God. And as our high priest who, you know, is without sin, this ability to now be in the presence of God, full and complete and all places and all times. There's the line from the gospels where when Jesus was crucified on the cross and when he breathed his last, the temple curtain was torn into two. And that little detail is given in the gospels to kind of let us know that that access to God's presence because of the death of Jesus has now been granted, you know, to us. And which is, you know, for us, we might take that for granted. I think sometimes we do like, oh, God's presence. He's yeah. with us always. But really coming out of this kind of story of Israel, this is revolutionary. This yeah. is life changing. This is, yeah, you know, was not one person once a year. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And so to, to not take for granted this, this fact that we have access to the presence of the living That's God good. is important. And then lastly, sins removed and forgiven completely. Um, again, one of those basic Christian 101 things, like we are, our sins are forgiven by yeah. grace, all that sort of stuff. But this really comes down to the priestly role that Jesus plays you know, on behalf of us. And I think kind That's of good. seeing this connection from what starts off as a very obscure passage in the book of Genesis really functions, especially in the story of Israel and the Jewish scriptures, as the seedbed for what we'll, yeah. we now see as the person work of Jesus. So. so maybe as we sort of go back to Genesis 14, it almost creates a precedent mm-hmm. for a Davidic figure yeah. who merges the kingly and the priestly, who then kind of creates precedent and expectation in the intertestamental period. Totally. So it's post-exile before Jesus' arrival. 
before the first century that then shapes expectations so that when Jesus shows up on the scene, they can say, oh, the king priest has arrived. Totally. Yes. Yes. And it sort of shapes understanding of how we even relate to God through Jesus Mm -hmm. as our great high priest. Totally. Yeah. And it gives us a lot to chew on and think about just the richness and almost like a multifaceted sort of diamond, all the angles and ways we can see just the beauty of what Christ has done for us. It's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Cool. So good.